0: Hello and welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. This week has been an exciting week. I've gotten to talk to so many people who really loved the interview with Monica Crowfoot and really felt like as she was talking about reclaiming her Indigenous heritage, her Indigenous culture, her Indigenous identity, that you could relate I heard from people who identify as Mexican-American, Brazilian-American, Vietnamese-American, Korean-American, and you told me that you often feel pulled between two cultures as well. You could relate with how Monica talked about feeling like, as a Mormon, that she wasn't allowed to fully claim her Navajo heritage, and as a Navajo— She often felt on the outside because she was Mormon. And this phenomenon is called intra-group marginalization, and Monica covered it so well last week. She talked about her experience, and if that's something that you would like to relate with and you haven't listened to that podcast, please go listen to Podcast 59 with Monica Crowfoot. It is a fantastic representation of what so many of us in societies where there are lots of mixed cultures, we can often feel like we're pulled between cultures, especially when our parents are either immigrants from another place and we're being raised in a place that's different than where our parents are from. Or when our parents are from two different places or two different cultural groups, we can sometimes feel pulled between those two different groups and it can leave us feeling like we don't fully fit in any one group. I love the way my sister put it. My sister is Mexican-American. She said that it feels like there is no place for her. There is no home for her. She's neither Mexican enough nor white enough to fully identify with any one place. My sister has often talked about herself as feeling like she's white on the inside, wrapped in Mexican skin. And she speaks Spanish. She learned it as part of her Mormon mission. And she was a Spanish high school teacher. And she often talked about feeling like she wasn't fully connected even though she has this Mexican-American heritage, she wasn't fully connected to her Mexican roots, and but also not fully connected to being white because she has experienced racism because of her brown skin, and she has experienced exclusion, especially living in Utah. So there's a lot to unpack here. And I don't think that all of it has to do with religious trauma. Not all of it has to do with high-demand religion. And yet, I think that a lot of us who are trying to find our identities after leaving high-demand religion often sometimes have this intergroup marginalization as we're trying to reclaim ourselves that we're having to wade through as well. We're having to figure out who we are. And part of that question is, what is my cultural identity? And I think the most surprising thing for me this week was how many conversations I ended up having with people who loved hearing Monica's story but felt a longing inside of themselves because their ancestors come from Europe someplace, and maybe they come from several different places in Europe. And their ancestors immigrated here to the United States, and they feel like they have no cultural heritage, they have no ties, and they feel unrooted. Their cultural identity feels really nebulous, and it has left them sort of feeling like, who am I? How do I identify? Who are my people? And I think this is really important, especially in a melting pot like the United States. And I hate that term, melting pot, but another word is not coming to mind right now. But in a place where we have lots of different influences from lots of different cultures, and I feel like those of us who have ancestry that goes back several generations to Europe often we can just have this sort of whitewashed feeling of our lineage. And I think it's because so many of us, our immigrant ancestors came over, they were asked to give up their languages that weren't English, their Scandinavian languages, their German language, their Italian language, their Celtic language. And they were asked to really Anglicize themselves when they came here to America. And so they left behind their customs and their traditions. Sometimes they changed their names to make them easier to pronounce in English. They left behind their art and their dance and sometimes even their food. Sometimes they left those things behind and they tried to become as American as possible. And I think just like us being in high demand religions, having to put aside parts of our identity, I think that can happen to entire cultures as well. And I think that that's something that we're seeing in the European-American space. People who are of European descent often don't know who they are, what their roots are, and what their cultural identity is because their ancestors, just like all the immigrants that come here, are asked to put aside parts of themselves that don't fit the American narrative and it leaves us feeling identityless. It leaves us feeling unrooted and unsure of who we are. So I think a lot of our ancestors put on pseudo identities in order to appear more American. And now we're kind of feeling the effects of that, and I think we've been feeling the effects of that for generations, but I think we're starting to wake up now, and we're starting to realize how important it is to have a personal identity, and I think that's why some of this is coming to the surface now. So if you fell into either camp, either as a multicultural person with strong cultural heritage that sometimes you felt like you were at war with living in America or you felt at war with that strong cultural heritage because you had two parents with two different heritages, know that this episode is for you. And if you find that you're of European descent and you don't really feel like you have a cultural heritage, this is also for you. Now, like everything on this podcast, I want you to know that there is no right or wrong answer that applies to everyone. Claiming cultural identity. So, we're going to kind of explore the importance of cultural identity. We're going to look at it through several different lenses and we're going to talk about why this could be an important part of your personal identity. But I do understand that sometimes we don't want to claim our cultural heritage. Sometimes we're not ready to do that or there is trauma associated with that. And so, you get to do what feels like it best supports you. We're going to Open this up as a possibility to help you get to know yourself better. But do know that if there's trauma related with this, you get to listen to yourself first and do what feels best for you. All right, so let's talk about what identity is and why it's important. So, our identity basically is how we answer the question Who am I? And what does it mean to be who I am? Now, these seem like really basic questions. And it seems like something we should all know, right? If you don't know who you are, who does? And the thing I'm finding, especially as we're deconstructing from high-demand religion, is that many of us don't consciously choose our identity. And instead, what we do is we just internalize the values of our parents and the dominant culture in which we were raised. Now, this might be Americanism as the dominant culture, or for me, Mormonism was the dominant culture. It kind of overarched all the other cultures that I was raised in. I was Mormon first. And so those of us listening to this podcast, we know what this feels like. Because my guess is if you came from high demand religion, your religion was the dominant culture. And then after that, it might have been your family culture, or it might have been some other culture that was underneath that that informed who you were. And my guess is also that you didn't consciously choose those identities, you simply internalized them. And now that you're deconstructing, you're starting to realize how much you internalized and you're beginning to develop your own personal identity. What happens is when we aren't conscious of our identity, we can often end up feeling unfulfilled because the values of the family, the group, or the dominant culture may not align with our personal values and our beliefs. So when we're asked to put on a mask, when we're asked to conform, we can do that all right for a while, but over time we start to feel unfulfilled if conforming doesn't also align with our personal values. So if I have a personal value of freedom and I start noticing that there's authoritarian control that is restricting my freedom then I start being in cognitive dissonance with the group that I'm in because I'm not fully free to be myself and I can't exercise freedom to be myself. So you might notice this in some of the groups. Now, identity is split into two different parts. There's personal identity and there's social identity. And you guys have heard me speak volumes about personal identity on this podcast because it's the work I believe is such a foundation to healing from religious trauma and reclaiming our sense of personal authority. So my personal opinion is I don't think that it is healthy or safe to deconstruct from a religion and jump right into another social construct. I think that when we do that and we haven't taken time to get to know ourselves personally, that we're often at risk of joining another cult-like group or another high-demand group. We're still going to be looking for people to tell us who we are and to validate us and to give us reassurance that we're worthwhile and we're enough. I feel like Having a personal identity, knowing who we are, is a key first step to being able to safely belong in groups. So in order to create community that is healthy, in order to create belonging in society that is healthy, we have to belong to ourselves first. We have to know who we are first in order to belong to ourselves. Now, personal identity is the ability to see yourself as different from those around you. And I've had people ask, how do I know if I have a personal identity? Well, if you're able to see yourself as different, as differentiated from those around you and you're able to express that and you feel comfortable and confident expressing your differences and your boundaries, you likely have a strong personal identity. This is what makes you unique, and it's what makes you you versus any other human. It's what makes you you versus any other member in your family or any other member of a group you might be a part of. I know in past podcasts I've told you that we look for belonging with other people and in groups, but we're never going to 100% belong. There's never going to be a place a healthy place, I should say, where we completely overlap. Whenever we find ourselves completely overlapping with a group ideology or with another person, we're getting into codependency. We're actually shape-shifting ourselves or they're shape-shifting themselves in order for us to perfectly line up. There should be edges that hang off. There will be places where we align and places where we're individual and And that's when we know that we're in healthy relationships, is when both of us remain unique. When each member of the group has their similarities that draw us together, but then we also have these things that make us unique and individual. So I want you to take a moment, pause the episode, spend as much time as you need with yourself and ask, what makes me me? How are you different from any other human on the planet? Give yourself some time to think about this and really pay attention, especially those of us who are deconstructing high-demand religion and codependency. Notice if all of the things that you're putting down relate to how you serve other people or your relationships with other people. Because if everything about you has to do with other people, you still haven't quite discovered your personal identity. You've discovered your social identity because our social identity is how we relate with others. But personal identity is who we are. It's informed by our social identity, but it's who we are at our core. Some things that might come up might be the way you look, the way you think, your likes and dislikes, your values, your personality, your habits, your beliefs. It's also informed by social groups that you identify with, like your race, your ethnicity, your religious beliefs, your sexual orientation, gender identity, your age, physical attributes, political affiliations, professional identities, your socioeconomic status, your education, your life roles like mother, father, daughter, son, grandparent, et cetera, and your birth order. So it is going to include groups that you identify with, but pay attention as you're writing what makes me, me is everything about belonging to a group and how you associate with other people or are there personal characteristics as well, personal values as well. Are there things that make you different from those groups as well? Your personal identity is meant to evolve over time as you learn more about yourself and the world around you. So your personal identity is meant to change and grow as you change. Now, when we're kids, many of us begin life by mimicking our parents and caregivers as we're learning to mature into adults. We go through a first process of developmental differentiation around the age of two. So if you study human development, they've noticed that kids seem to believe they are an extension of their parents before the age of about two years old. They see their parents and themselves as one cohesive unit. It is very codependent. And we've been talking about conditional and unconditional love on the Facebook group. And this is that place where unconditional love is so important because there is no differentiation of self. And having a secure attachment, particularly before the age of two, is really going to revolve around giving this child love unconditionally. They're not capable of reciprocity yet. They're not capable of mutuality yet. They're not capable of necessarily giving back in a relational way because they don't know that they're completely different than their parents. As far as we know yet, new studies may show us differently, but for right now, what we know about human development is before the age of two, children have not differentiated themselves from their parents, but they start in what we call the terrible twos and the terrible threes realizing that they are their own person to a certain extent. And they start using a word that drives so many parents crazy. And that word is no. And they use that word a lot. This is actually a really healthy development. This is a child's first foray into setting boundaries, realizing they have a voice, they can voice what they like and they don't like, they can voice what they want and what they don't want. Sometimes they use the word no just to say no, just because they can. This is actually a really healthy development and it means that children are learning that they can set boundaries and have a sense of self that is separate and apart from anyone else that they know. They're learning what is them, what makes them unique, how are they different from those around them, and they're using their voice to explore that. And then we go through another longer process of differentiation in human development in the teen years. So no, those teens are not just being rebellious or obstinate without a reason, This is the stage where our brains begin to really understand abstract ideas, and we may begin to realize that our ideas of things like justice, belonging, love, freedom, spirituality, etc., may be different than those that raised us and cared for us as children. This differentiation period is so important as we prepare to go off into the world and care for ourselves as adults. When the adults in our lives act as supports to this process, asking us curiosity questions, encouraging us to find the answers that make sense to us, and create safe space for us to discuss and explore those ideas, even when they're different than our caregivers, we develop a healthy sense of both self and belonging. And that's what we're going to be talking about so much today, is we need a healthy sense of self in order to maintain personal identity when we belong to groups. Otherwise, we fall right back into that same old trap that happened when we were in high-demand religion, where we put off ourselves and have others tell us who we are, what we value, and what we believe, and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. We go back to an infantilized state of being. We go back to that pre-teen period where we need an authority to tell us how to be in the world, what the rules are, what we can and can't do. That's why so many of us, when we leave high-demand religion, we feel like a teenager or a preteen stuck in an adult body. It's because we weren't allowed to fully differentiate ourselves. Or if we did go through a differentiation process, we may have reverted back to that childlike state when we were in the indoctrination. We may have put off the differentiation and taken on the identity of a little child, like we're told to do often, right? Who's submissive, meek, humble, patient, willing to submit to all things that the father sees fit to inflict upon them. Sorry, that just came rushing in. Seminary days come right back to me sometimes, But we're told to become like children. We're told to put off this differentiation. And we're told that we need an authority to tell us who to be, how to act, what to value, and what to believe. Now, when that happens, when we revert, when we put off the differentiation, when we revert to this place, we don't have a healthy sense of self. And we can't have a healthy sense of belonging when we're not allowed to be ourselves. So it gets rid of a healthy sense of belonging and replaces it with codependency, where we take on someone else's identity and we shapeshift to be what they want us to be. And we lose our belonging to ourselves as well. And it makes sense that we're asked to do this in high demand religions, because when we don't have a strong sense of self, we're easier to control. I want you to think of parents of teens. I have teens right now. I know that this is difficult, but it's so much easier when we can just make them say yes, right? If they would just do what we say, then we wouldn't have to watch them get hurt. We wouldn't have to watch them make grades that might not lead them to graduate or make choices that could bring them pain. And I think many of us from this place of let me save you pain, sometimes what we do is we say, let me control and manipulate you. And we create this place that is not safe for our teens to explore who they are and what they value. And we will probably talk about this in an episode later. I'm actually looking for parenting experts who really delve into post-religious parenting Because I think many of us could use some help and some guidance with parenting our children as well as our teens through these differentiation processes, through critical thinking, and through creating a of self rooted in their own personal values, not rooted in our personal values. And how do we live with our kids as they're going through this differentiation process in a way that encourages their personal identity, and creates a sense of belonging in the family group. So let me know if that's something you're interested in because that's something that I want to get on the docket, but I am looking for experts to talk with because I'm still figuring it out too. There are things that we've tried that have worked really well with our preteen and teen, and there are things that have not worked so well, and we're still problem-solving together with them to figure out what works for all of us. And maybe that is a key, that as we're going through this, we admit that we don't know it all. We admit that we're healing from trauma that happened when we were teens, and we might not get it right, but we're open to talking about it with our teens and problem-solving together. That seems to be working really well in our household, and I would have loved that in my household growing up, if I would have been able to say, hey, so this 10 o'clock curfew thing isn't really working for me. I'd like to negotiate with you, find out what the purpose of this 10 o'clock curfew is, and maybe negotiate together and find something that is a win-win for both of us. I think those are really healthy adulting skills that I wish had been modeled for me. So maybe just doing that is going to at least get us closer to that sense of healthy self and healthy family belonging in our family. But let's carry on with this podcast. Now, if we're going to belong to a group and we have a strong sense of personal identity, what actually makes us really difficult to control is that we do understand our likes and our dislikes, what we think even when it's different from the popular thought in the room, what we believe independent to other people's beliefs, and what we value Knowing who we are allows us to set personal boundaries and keep ourselves safe from manipulation and abuse and engage in trusting intimate relationships. So it's not just about keeping ourselves safe. Knowing who we are actually allows us to know when we can open up and be vulnerable and let people in. Because when we have a healthy sense of personal identity, We can more easily read red flags. We more easily know when people have crossed our boundaries. We can communicate that better. And we trust ourselves to be able to problem solve anything that may come up, any way that that relationship might evolve in the future. Building this kind of self-awareness comes from being attuned to your physiological responses, meaning how does your body feel? Do you have tightness in your shoulders? Is your heart beating fast? Are your hands clammy? Emotions in our bodies. So thoughts produce emotions and emotions produce physiological responses. Being aware of our physiological responses, that rock in your stomach, the headache that you have, the ache in your lower back, noticing what is your body doing? What is your body saying to you? Being aware of that and then tracing that to your emotions and your thoughts and offering yourself an atmosphere of curiosity and acceptance as you work through your reality gives you a sense of so much self-trust. Imagine if you had a person in your life that wanted to know what your reality was. Zero judgment, only curiosity, And was willing to sit with you as you explored, what am I feeling and what might this mean? And there were no wrong answers and no right answers. It just got to be an exploratory space where you learn together. Can you imagine how beautiful and safe that would feel to have someone say, you can take up space and all of your reality is welcome here? I just want to hear about it. Help me understand what you're feeling. This is what you're providing for your inner self. You're becoming the kind of friend that says, I see that your hands are clammy. Tell me about that. What are you feeling? What are you thinking right now that's leading to those clammy hands? Oh, you're feeling afraid. You're feeling nervous. What are you feeling afraid about? And you ask curiosity questions and you're there and you actively listen and there's no judgment, only acceptance. This is what I'm experiencing. Right now, this is why I'm experiencing that thing. And getting curious until you know what you need to do about it, if anything. Sometimes we have emotions that we just need to be like, yeah, I see you. You're afraid. And I get that. What we're about to do is scary, but I got you. This is what we're going to do if that thing you're worried about happens. This is our parachute, but we're still going to do this, and you still get to be afraid, and that's okay. You be afraid over there. Breathe into the paper bag if you need to. We'll do this together. When we can do that for ourselves, imagine how we get to show up in groups of other people. And also imagine if that is what we give ourselves, how difficult it is for someone else to manipulate us with fear or shame we belong to ourselves. We're willing to sit with fear and shame. We're willing to listen to it, give it open space, figure out what it needs. And when we have that going for us, we can trust ourselves to enter into relationships and to risk relationships with other people. When we're in this space, it also allows us to take ownership of our experience And give ourselves the care and comfort that we need to work through problems. So one of the things I've really noticed about people with a healthy sense of self, a healthy sense of self-acceptance and knowing who they are, is they take ownership. They're more accountable for their experience. They're more accountable for the harm they accidentally cause. They're more open to learning. They're more open to owning their mistakes and learning from those mistakes. Just when I think about what our society would be like, filled with people who knew themselves, could accept themselves, and could trust themselves, what that would do for our ability to problem solve together as groups of people. Now, I've spoken on several podcasts about this differentiation and creating a personal identity and why it's sometimes incredibly difficult for those of us who have come from high-demand religions or family systems. So if this is something that you're wanting to delve into and learn more about, because I know some of you are listening to this for the first time, you're like, tell me more. How do I get there? I actually cover that in episode two, Wait, Who Am I? Reclaiming Identity After Religious Transition. And... I also cover it a bit in episode 56, Recognizing and Releasing Codependency. This is a huge cornerstone of my work. I focus a lot on personal identity and on self-acceptance and how we navigate that and get to that place so that we can create not only a healthy sense of self-worth, but we can create healthier relationships with family of origin healthier relationships with spouses with children with all of that i am specialized in knowing and accepting and trusting yourself and from that place you also learn to really love and value yourself as well it is a big process it is it is a process for sure It is an ongoing process for me. I've been practicing this now for 12 years, and I am still learning about myself, still learning to hold myself and accept myself. And there are layers that I peel back that I've never peeled back before. So I'm still learning and growing. But each year it gets better and better, and I learn how to be there for me so that I can Trust myself to be there for other people without taking on their stuff, without being sucked in to whatever might be going on, without being taken advantage of or abused. The more I learn about myself, the more I belong to me, the better able I am to go out in the community, make friends, and have a support system, and the better relationships I have with the people who matter most to me. If this is something that feels really difficult for you, I have a course for that. So I created the Emancipate Yourself app. There are two courses. One of them is on reconnecting to your inner self. Many of us are disembodied when we come from high demand religion. So go over there, Emancipate Yourself. It is on both Google Play and it is in the Apple iTunes Store Head on over there. There's a seven-day free trial. You can go over there. There are weeks of information. It takes you step by step through reclaiming the communication with your inner self. Like How do you get back in touch with your inner guidance system so that you can hear what you believe, what you value, and who you are? So the first course is all about just reconnecting with yourself, getting back into your body and feeling comfortable with your emotions and being able to trace that back to your thoughts and using your thoughts to help you trace back to your beliefs and your values, just all of it. It's a fantastic course on mind-body connection. And then from there, there's a second course. Once you feel competent with mind-body connection, there's a second course on reclaiming your identity. And how you can use what you learn in the first course to start tracking your values, to start tracking your limiting beliefs, the subconscious beliefs that keep you from feeling good about living life according to your personal values. And just oh, so much good stuff there. I have people that have been using it now since the beginning of December. I'm getting lots of great feedback. People are saying this is changing their lives and it's really helping them get to know themselves better. And On top of that, we have a weekly group coaching call where I answer people's questions live. It is one of the least expensive ways to get coaching and to get the support that you need as you're going through the identity reclamation process. So head over there, check out the seven-day free trial And if you decide that you want to continue on, the subscription is $39.99 a month. I tried to keep it as inexpensive and accessible as possible because we all deserve support with healing from religious trauma. So head over there. I would love to see you on the call this week. Um, Our calls are always on Mondays. So I would love to see you on the call. I would love to hear about how the course is helping you during that seven days. We would love to have you be part of the group. All right, now we're going to hop into social identity. So social identity is also an important part of our sense of self. And I'm going to be really upfront with you. This is the part that I'm working on right now with my sense of identity. I've done probably seven years of work on my personal identity, extricating myself from a codependent way of living with my family and really figuring out who I am, what I want, what I don't want, what I like and don't like, where my boundaries are, what I believe, what I value, and really getting in the habit of checking in with myself daily and making course corrections as things no longer work and as I need new solutions. And it's been so freeing. It's been one of the best things I've ever done. However... Now that I've healed a lot of the religious trauma and I've healed a lot of my sense of self and I've healed a lot of my personal identity, the next layers are coming up for me and they have a lot to do with my social identity. I know several of us when we leave high demand religions, we can be really afraid to be in social groups because we're afraid of being taken advantage of again. We can be afraid of getting into relationships with friends because we've experienced fake friendships in the past and we don't know how to tell if we can trust people. We might be afraid to join communities because we don't want to get sucked into another cult like atmosphere. We can be afraid even to get close to our own families because they believe differently than us and we're not really sure how to remain true to ourselves and set those boundaries and still interact with our social groups so there's a lot that goes on with this whole social identity but I will tell you from personal experience and it seems like from the experience of my clients we don't completely feel whole until we've allowed ourselves to start working with our social identity again It makes sense that we might take a break from a social identity for a little bit when we're healing from high demand religion. Isolating is part of the grieving process. We may feel ourselves sort of isolate for a bit so that we can figure out our personal identity. And that's important. We need to know who we are so that we can confidently interact in social groups. But there's going to come a time when we need to participate with our social identity so that we can feel a complete sense of well-being. Now, as simply as I can put it, social identities are how we see ourselves as alike with those with whom we identify. It's our brain's way of comparing and contrasting and seeing where do we fit? And we learn from others that we feel like are like us And we check back in with our personal identity. So we go into the group and we feel it out and say, are these people like me? And if we do identify, it helps us understand parts of ourselves better. In fact, Henry Tajfell, the psychologist who developed social identity theory, said that the groups people belong to give us an important sense of belonging in the social world. So it helps us with our personal identity. And so it's kind of a loop. It's a chicken and egg sort of situation where we belong in social groups and it informs our personal identity, but we need to also be informed by our personal identity when things from the social group aren't fitting with our personal values. We need both. It's a feedback from both parts of our identity. Remember, as humans, we're hardwired for connection, which means we have a need to feel accepted and belong because we're a social species. And just a quick reminder, this doesn't mean we're hardwired to be extroverts, but it does mean that all of us crave love and acceptance from at least a small number of other humans. We crave being seen and heard and understood. That's what I mean by we're a social species and we're wired to connect. We don't need a whole world of friends, but we do need at least one other person that sees us and gets us. Ideally, we would want a small group of people because it can be really tempting when we have just one other person to get into a place of codependency. So we're looking for a small group of people. Maybe not all at the same time, right? Maybe there is one person that I dance with. And maybe there's one person that I talk about my religious deconstruction with. And maybe there's a person that I garden with or I hike with. But we're looking for people that we can resonate with. Because what happens is when we're with other people, they act as mirrors to ourselves, both for good and bad, actually. So in social identity, what's happening is I show up let's say I'm a musician, I show up in this group of musicians, you mirror back to me what it means to be a musician. You mirror back to me what that means for my personal identity. Because I'm going to get to see lots of different musicians and I'm going to say, okay, so I'm not so much like this person, but I am like this person. We're all musicians. That's the commonality here. But I identify as a musician in this way. Now people can also mirror back to us the things that we don't like about ourselves. They can mirror back to us the places where there's still work to do. So if you ever find yourself really getting triggered by another person, their personality traits, their opinions, the way that they are showing up in the world, it's a time to get curious with yourself as well because In order for them to trigger you in that way, so if you find yourself getting really irritated, angry, frustrated, overwhelmed, anxious, it's just an invitation for you to get curious with yourself. What is in there that still needs your attention? That's basically just your inner child being like, hey, 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 oh, by the way, there is a box over here I've been meaning to tell you about. It still needs to be unpacked. Can we look at that? So, just know that when we're in social groups, they act as mirrors both to our own strengths and our own identity, but they can also act as mirrors to the places where we still have healing to do and things to unpack, limiting beliefs about who we are and what it means to be us. All of it is great information. And social groups can be anything, they can be families. They can be friendships, they can be religions, political parties, professional groups, educational groups, self-help groups, or groups for people with similar hobbies and interests. Being in these groups can help us understand ourselves better and relate with others who have similar interests and personalities and backgrounds and experiences. There is something powerful in the words, me too. There's this commonality of feeling seen and understood. And if you think about it, it's because of group identity that you're here today listening to this podcast. There is something so self-validating about hearing someone else express an experience similar to yours. It tells us we aren't alone. We aren't strange or weird or unacceptable for being who we are. There are others out there too, and they get it there is power in feeling seen and heard that power can help us accept ourselves more and strengthen our personal identities and sense of self-worth even in the face of rejection from those who don't get it and i think that's probably the most strengthening thing about our social identities is when we see others who feel the same way we do or experience life the same way we do or have the same culture or had the same family experience and we feel seen and we feel like we belong, right? It helps us belong better to ourselves. Like it allows us to be like, okay, I can accept this about myself. And that gives us resilience in the face of other people who maybe can't accept us for some reason or don't get what it's like to be us. So it gives us more resilience, And this is why race, ethnicity, and cultural heritage are so important for our personal identities. In fact, it's one of the eight main categories of social identity that psychologists and human development researchers study. But for those of us from countries comprised mostly of immigrants from all over the world, the questions of our race, ethnicity, and cultural heritage are harder to answer, and they can feel like a missing puzzle piece to how we fit into the world and how we relate and belong. Now, I'm going to use myself here as an example just to talk about how this breaks down. What is the difference between race, ethnicity, and cultural heritage? Because sometimes in the United States, those things get mixed up. And I really almost didn't put race. And I went back and forth with it because anthropologically, race is a total social construct. And it was used as a way to justify imperialism and colonialism. And yet, I think it's important to understand that race still drives politics, it still drives our justice system, it still drives educational opportunities and like all kinds of opportunities. The opportunity to buy a house, to get financing, uh, the financial sector, who gets to be the CEO of the company, like all of that. It influences who the police pull over when they're looking for a suspect. It influences so many things. So I left race here, but we're going to go ahead and break this down with race, ethnicity, and cultural heritage, okay? Just from my life, and here we go. So racially, I'm considered white. I mean, you guys have seen pictures of me. I have white skin, um... Whenever I mark my paper, you know, whenever they're asking you questions for, like, tests in college and stuff like that, and they ask you what race you are, I mark Caucasian. And this gets really tricky because I come from a mixed ethnicity family, and my brother and sister, it's really difficult because if you're Hispanic, you still mark Caucasian or other. There's no great box that represents Hispanic people. Um, It often asks you later if you're Hispanic or non-Hispanic. Like, are you a Hispanic Caucasian or a non-Hispanic Caucasian? And it really doesn't make sense. Coming from a Mexican-American family, like, it does not make sense. But racially, I'm considered white or Caucasian. However, ethnically, my family members, my personal family members, because I'm adopted. (laughs) I was adopted by my Mexican American father. So racially in my family, aside from my mother, I am the only Caucasian, whatever that means, that's a mountain range in Europe. It really doesn't make sense. It's nowhere near where my people came from. But ethnically, My family members immigrated from social groups that identify as Irish Catholics, English Anglican Congregationalists, and German Methodists. Ethnicity is a common culture, religion, or language that people share. Sometimes ethnicity and nationality are kind of like mixed up, but that kind of gives you an idea of what we're looking at. So race is like the color of your skin and it doesn't really talk about your heritage or your ethnicity or your, your culture, your language, your people. It has nothing to do with that. Ethnicity, on the other hand, talks about a common like religion, language, or cultural heritage or a nationality that your people that you came from possess. Okay, so ethnicity in the United States has been used as a racial slur as well, and we often only apply it to brown and black people, but white people have an ethnicity as well. Irish Catholics are different than English Anglican Congregationalists. Just go live in the UK like I did for three years. The Welsh people will get so mad at you if you mistake them for English. The Scottish people will get so angry at you if you mistake them for English people. And same for the Irish. Four distinct ethnicities living in one country. One nationality, United Kingdom, although they'll debate that as well. <laughs> four different kingdoms living in one United Kingdom. So one nationality. However, there are four distinct ethnicities, like main ethnicities in that country. And we all know that there are even more ethnicities than that because immigration is everywhere and people bring their ethnicities with them. My ancestors then took those ethnic identities and morphed them with American idealism into a new cultural identity like Kentucky hillbillyism in the Cumberland Gap. And if you're wondering if it's really a cultural identity, please go read the Hillbilly Elegy. It was like understanding my maternal grandfather's family in a whole new way. And it helped me at least understand, if not completely make peace with some of the shenanigans on that side of the family. My guess is that your ancestors also had their own ethnic identity that they brought here to America, morphed with American idealism and created a cultural identity that is unique to the other people that likely came here with them. Now, culturally, my story gets even a little bit more complicated. So we've gone over race, just my skin color, right? We've talked about my ethnicity, the cultural, religious, and language, and nationalistic pieces of my ancestry. Now, culturally, my story gets a little more complicated. Like I said, I was adopted by a first-generation Mexican-American father, and I had a household full of Mexican-American siblings. I'm not Mexican-American myself, but I was raised as if I was. This part of my story always reminds me of You've Got Mail. There's a place where Tom Hanks is talking to Meg Ryan. And he's there with his father's daughter. Or he's there with his grandfather's daughter, who is his aunt, but she's like 10. And his father's son, who is his brother, but he's like 5. And she's trying to guess their family relationship. She thinks these are his kids. And Tom Hanks says, you know, the girl is my grandfather's daughter, making her my aunt. And this is my father's son, making him my brother. And he goes, we are an American family. And that resonated with me so much when I was watching that in high school and as a young adult. Because I felt seen and heard. Like an American family is such a mishmash of different backgrounds and different family structures. And I was a European American raised in a Mexican American household. And then add on top of that, that I wasn't able to actually talk openly about being adopted. I've known since I was a little girl that I was adopted. My mom, I remember her sitting me down and explaining my genetics, and I was so little. I I must have been three or four. And I knew personally, and it was like generally known in my family that I was adopted, but I wasn't allowed to really talk openly about it because it hurt my dad's feelings. It embarrassed my mother, and it made my siblings feel as if I was not claiming them as siblings. And so I actually pretended for most of my childhood that I was half Mexican to make everyone in my home feel better. So when people would ask me, like, why are you white and they're brown? I would just say, oh, I'm just the Blanquita. I take after my mom genetically, I guess. And I... I would just leave it at that. I would never talk about the paternity of how I came here. I wouldn't talk about, you know, that I had a different father. I wouldn't talk about the fact that I'm not Mexican-American. But in so many ways, I considered myself Mexican-American because that was my culture growing up. We had the pinatas that we smacked for our birthdays. We... (laughs) Had the cars in our backyard that my dad was always buying parts for and continually working on. He's still working on those cars. Big Red, the old like 1960s Chevy pickup truck, still in our backyard. The 1960, what's probably like a 1950, I don't know, 1950 something Chevy Bel Air, still in the backyard. My dad, all growing up, we would go on the weekends to a swap meet to look for parts for these cars. And he has this dream of fixing these cars up someday. And all of his buddies had cars in their backyards too. In fact, sometimes he'd do work on their cars and they would like trade him broken down go-karts that my dad would fix. And then we'd ride around the neighborhood on three-wheelers and go-karts that my dad had fixed up as payment for working on someone else's car. Um, I grew up eating tamales on special occasions, like, I remember my grandma teaching my mom to make tamales, and there was like a whole pig's head sitting on the counter, its eyeballs, like looking at me across the kitchen as my grandma got ready to roast that pig's head and teach my mom how to scrape the meat off and make the tamales with the masa and everything from, from scratch. I can make those tamales from scratch. My mom still makes them. And eventually I learned to speak Spanish. I even went to a private Catholic high school. For part of my growing up experience, we moved to Argentina when I was 16 and I attended private Catholic high school and learned to say Hail Mary, Mother of Grace in Spanish as my everyday routine. So I had a very eclectic, strange cultural upbringing that left me feeling like an imposter because a lot of the times I was. I acted like I was Mexican when I wasn't. I acted like I was half Mexican to people please people in my family and I wasn't. However, Mexican American culture is still my culture, as well as the German Methodist culture I was raised with on my mom's mom's side and the Cumberland Gap hillbilly culture I was raised with on my mom's dad's side. So I was raised with all of these things, and they're all part of me, the good, bad, and the ugly. They're all part of me. And if we're going to talk about cultural heritage Mormonism is also part of my cultural heritage. Still is, even though I've left the church. There is a distinct cultural heritage that comes often with high-demand religions because there are such strict ideas about what it's okay to eat and not okay to eat, how it's okay to dress, how it's okay to speak. I mean, one of you that's listening even pointed out that every time I have somebody on the podcast that is ex-Mormon, we speak the same. No matter where in the country we're from, we speak the same. We have very similar speech patterns. No matter our ethnicity, no matter our cultural heritage, no matter where we come from in the country. If we're American and we were Mormon at some point, especially if we were raised Mormon, we speak about things in a very specific way. The language is the same. Remember that's part of that heritage. We have. Very similar memories of what it was like to grow up Mormon. If I say green jello, every Mormon knows what I'm talking about. Even if your family was not one of those people that made green jello on the regular, you know what it's like to go to a potluck and see the green jello with the little bits of pineapple and shredded carrots in it. You know what that's like. You know what I mean when I say funeral potatoes, and how every time you go to an LDS funeral. Those potatoes with the little crispy like cornflake bits or like Ritz cracker bits are going to be there. That's part of our heritage. If I say casseroles, you know that that's what you're going to get if you have a baby. You're going to get some sort of casserole that has cream soup in it. That's going to come to your house and you're going to be forced to eat that when your parents are sick, whether it's good or not. Um... And then there's some other things that are going to be really common, too, like potato pearls and having to drink dry milk, those sorts of things. Like there's a lot of frugality, but also a lot of common recipes that are so quintessentially Mormon. And I've heard people say, as they're reclaiming their culture, that they're going to reclaim parts of mormonism or their fundamentalist christianity that still speak to them and inform their identity you get to do that too you might not want to at the beginning and that's okay i rejected everything mormon for a long time in fact i think i've talked about how part of my mormon culture was being in the kitchen making things from scratch Um, gardening. I didn't do any of these things for a couple of years after leaving Mormonism. I didn't journal. I didn't garden. I very rarely cooked. We got into some bad habits of eating pre-made meals. Uh, My kids cooked a lot. My husband tried to cook. We ate takeout because I just couldn't do it. I could not. I mean, I would do it occasionally, but It was so triggering for me to be in the kitchen because of the gender roles that had been put upon me in Mormonism and because I was so disgusted with Mormonism, just doing the parts of my role that I was taught in the church were just crazy triggering for me. So I avoided it as much as possible. If I did cook, I cooked huge batches of meals so that I could freeze some and not have to cook as often. And just not be in the kitchen. I avoided the kitchen at all costs. I definitely didn't garden. I quit doing food storage. Food storage is something that Mormons are encouraged to do, to have a year supply of food in case of the apocalypse or something bad happening. And even though I knew the benefits of having some food on hand, I just, I couldn't. It was, it was too much. It was too triggering. So There are lots of things that I gave up, singing certain hymns. I just, I gave it all up because it was too triggering. But now, as I've recovered that sense of personal identity, it has felt safe to reincorporate things that I realize are me, even though I learned them in Mormonism, they get to be a part of me because they're mine. I learned them in that culture, and they're part of my heritage, and I can claim those things without having to claim the entire culture. So I will never quit being partially Mormon. It informed my growing up years. It informed the lens through which I see the world. It gave me public speaking skills. It allowed me to know how to garden really well. Um, It taught me how to cook all kinds of things in the kitchen. And that's partly my family heritage as well. I'm a wheat farmer's granddaughter. I, um, I have two grandmas who had huge gardens and I would help them in their gardens. And they taught me how to can things and how to store things for food storage. So some of these things would have been passed down to me just from my family, but because Mormonism was the overarching culture, they were more associated with Mormonism, and I had to reject them for a while. But now I'm bringing back pieces of that culture, and it's really helped me feel like I have a full, rounded sense of self, and that there's no parts of me that I can't claim. Even with my Mexican-American heritage, sitting down with my siblings and just being vulnerable and saying, hey— So I feel like an imposter in this family sometimes because I feel like being a Mexican-American is part of my heritage, but I'm not Mexican-American. And there are things that I love, like making tamales from scratch, and I love the colorful dresses, and I love the Spanish language, and I love the sense of family and connection And I, you know, love my memories of going to my grandmother's casita and playing baseball with her unripe oranges in her garden and going to the tortilla factory and getting the tortillas. And I love making things in my mocajete and grinding up the corn and making things from scratch. Love doing that. But there was part of me that always felt guilty for doing that because in the back of my head, there was always a voice that said, you're not Mexican. You're an imposter. You are taking things that are not yours. And as I've sat with my siblings, it's been beautiful to realize that they want me to reclaim those things because I am their sibling and those things are mine. The only things I can't claim are the ethnicity. I am not Mexican-American, but the culture is still mine. The culture is still part of my life. It informed who I was growing up. It informed who my family is and how I relate with my family. So as I've gone through that journey of trying to figure out who I am as an adopted person in a multicultural family, some of the things I know are this. Our culture matters. It informs our sense of self and our sense of belonging. It helps us understand where we fit in the world. It helps us relate to others. And it allows us, the more we understand our culture and the more we understand ourselves, the better able we are to be tolerant of other people's cultures, the more accepting we can be. Now, I want to say one quick thing. Social identity often lends itself to doing what our human brains love to do to make sense of the world, which is create categories. Our brains love to sort. That's why when we were toddlers, we loved to put the yellow beads with the yellow beads and the red beads with the red beads and the blue beads with the blue beads. And we like to put the square block into the square hole and the round block into the round hole. Our brains love to sort and make sense of the world, and that includes our identity. Now, this is where us versus them thinking can come from. We decide who is categorically in the group and who is categorically outside of the group. And this isn't necessarily a good or bad thing. It's just a way to make sense of the world and how we fit into the world. However, and this is a big however, when we attach prejudice to those outside of the group, when we view certain groups as better than other groups, and this can happen to us not just in high-demand religion. This can happen to us even as people deconstructing. I've been seeing that in some of the deconstructing spaces that we've taken this us-versus-them thinking and brought that prejudice with us that what I'm doing in the groups I belong to are good and the groups and the people who don't belong to the group are bad. That's not okay. What happens is when we attach that prejudice to those outside the group, and we view certain groups as better than other groups, and here's where it gets really bad, when we give the groups we believe are good certain privileges and deny those privileges to those outside the group That's when it becomes problematic and it starts leading to issues of racism, sexism, xenophobia, bigotry, ableism, classism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the isms. In order for us to avoid our social identity leading to these problematic issues, we have to have a solid sense of personal identity. We have to be able to look at rhetoric that's happening in these groups and to be able to compare it with our personal values, our personal beliefs, our personal likes and dislikes and boundaries. And we have to be able to say, this is in alignment or it's not in alignment. When the social identity is our only identity, when we don't have that personal identity to bounce it against and to compare it with, It is so easy to get sucked into all of us are similar and we are right and all of you are different and you are wrong because the group has become our full identity. The group is where we get our personal validation, not from inside ourselves, not from our sense of how we're different from others and how we're the same from others, but only I am the same here. And I will only be the things that are the same and anything that's different is scary, evil, wrong, bad. It is a balance of both of these. Personal identity mixed with social identity. So as we're wrapping up here today, I highly encourage those of you who are listening to get curious about your personal identity. And if you haven't done the work, to reconnect with yourself and to begin learning about your likes and dislikes, your wants and your boundaries, your values, your beliefs, to start there, to do that work. And as you get that more rooted sense of self, to start thinking about what parts of my culture inform who I am. How does being German Methodist? How does my ancestry being German Methodist inform who I am? How does my ancestry being Kentucky hillbillies inform who I am? How do I see those patterns in my family? What was passed down to me? This is going to tell us a lot about our generational trauma as well that might still be floating in our family systems and help us have understanding for how we can heal it and what needs to happen inside of us so that we can be free of those traumatic experiences that have been passed down through the generations. How does being an adoptee in a Mexican-American family inform who I am? The more I understand the uniqueness of my cultural identity and all of us here in the United States have a very unique cultural identity. And I feel like so often in our history, we've sh- tried to strive for homogeneity. I don't think it's done us any favors. Homogeny isn't the goal. The goal is to recognize where we're similar while retaining a sense of how we're individually different. That is what healthy belonging looks like. I get to remain an American with Irish and German heritage, who was adopted into a Mexican-American family and learned Spanish and Mexican culture, and who was raised Mormon with an evangelical extended family on one side and a Catholic family on the other side, I get to be, as Tom Hanks said, part of an American family, and I get to choose which parts of those things I keep as my identity. Exploring them informs who I am, what's important to me, what I value, and what I believe, and it's helped me to connect with my family in ways that I haven't connected before. At least with some more understanding. Like I said, if I haven't quite made peace with some of the parts of my family history, at least I have more understanding for where those things came from and the trauma that maybe created some of those patterns in my family. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, okay, I don't even know where to start, here are some of my suggestions. If you're wanting to get curious about your cultural heritage, So there are lots of resources for family history. I already know that that's going to be really traumatic for a bunch of people coming from a Mormon background. If that's traumatic for you, toss that out the window. That was traumatic for me all the way up until probably a couple months ago. Um, I finally released all of the little pink and blue and white cards that I got from the temple to my mom. Um, It no longer mattered to me, but I spent years working on my family history. I knew a lot about my family history before um, leaving the church. It's something I worked on during my years of infertility when we couldn't have kids. That's how I, I guess, made myself feel better about um, my role as a woman in the church, not being able to have kids. I threw myself into temple work and into Family history work. So I've traced my family a long, long way back, like back to the 1500s, and um, I've collected stories and pictures and um, just all kinds of things about my family. And again, I like completely distanced myself from that after leaving the church because I was like, I wasted all this time. And yet, it's also informed part of my identity and helped me understand my family. And in some ways, has helped me heal religious trauma too. So. There are lots of resources for doing family history research if you choose to do that. And I will tell you, it's a completely different experience doing it because you're curious about your cultural heritage and not because you're trying to save the dead. Just saying. But if you're not there yet, I get that. And if you never get there, also acceptable. Um, It gets to be whatever serves you best. So there's that. I'm also thinking about taking a genetic test. Because I'm adopted, I don't know about half of my heritage, and my birth father didn't want anything to do with me. Once he found out my mother was pregnant, he left the scene. I've never met him. I've met his sister, and she was a part of my life growing up, but often doesn't disclose a lot of details about their family. So I know very little, if anything, aside from medical history. So I'm thinking about getting a genetic test. Um, simply because I'm really curious what's going on with that side of the family. And hopefully that'll give me some clues. Even if I don't have the stories or know any of that, that's fine. I'm just really curious about what makes me me, I guess. So I might do that for myself this year. Um, Some other things you can do is once you know where your family comes from, look for stories, art, Music. There's been something so cool about realizing that the food that I grew up with on my mom's mom's side of the family is all German cooking for the most part. The beef rolls that my grandma made, the beef stew that my grandma made, the potato pancakes my grandma would make all of those things came from her German Methodist heritage and it was passed down through the generations. I thought we had lost all of our culture. And come to find out half the recipes in my family recipe book come straight from Germany. I didn't realize that, though, until we lived in England and we got to travel all over Europe. And when we would go to Germany, I was like, this is like eating at my grandma's house. And I was like, oh, this is so good. What is this? Um, And learning that those things just had different names at my grandma's table, but they were the same dish. I was eating the same dishes in Germany at least in northern Germany, where my family comes from, southern Germany. Bavarian Germany cooking is very different. So delicious, but very different. So yeah, there was something really cool about going to Germany and eating food that I had had at my grandmother's table that my mom cooked even, and realizing this came from my German heritage. And That's going to be my next suggestion as well is like learn about the cooking, the food, the art, the music, and immerse yourself in some of it. It's really cool to realize how some of that culture is probably still in your family and may even be in American society. Really, really cool. The next thing is if you get a chance, visit the homelands that your ancestors came from. I learned all about my mom's father's side, who came from County Cork in Ireland, and going to Ireland to the piece of land that my family would have lived on, there was something really cool and special about that. Walking the ruins with my young son felt really cool, and I felt really connected to land in a way I hadn't felt connected to before to realize like there was deep history here thousands of years of history and my family hadn't just popped up in america a couple hundred years ago but that i had ancestors that had gone back obviously through time and that there was a rich history there so all of that informed who i am and gave me a a stronger sense of self and more permission to be unique You can't be an Irish, German, Kentucky hillbilly, Methodist, Protestant, Mormon, raised in a Mexican-American family with Catholic roots without being incredibly unique. And my guess is you are just as unique. And it is beautiful to discover that about yourself and to learn to accept it and love it. And when you do... It allows you to meet every other person with that same curiosity and acceptance. And I can't help but believe that's going to make our world a better place. All right. I've been talking for forever about this, and I was expecting this to be a short podcast. It became more of like storytelling time. But thank you for sitting with me. Thank you for letting me explore this with you. I think many of us feel confused about our cultural identities, and I think as long as we feel confused about our cultural identities, we're not going to be fully at peace with our own personal identities. So I'm hoping this helped you make sense a little bit out of your own unique cultural story and gives you the permission that maybe you need to give yourself to look into who you are and what your roots are and understand yourself better so that you can really anchor into what it means to be you and both how you're different from others and how you're the same and what your place in this beautiful world is. Thank you for spending your time with me. I hope that this was helpful. I'd love to hear from you this week. Please go to the Facebook group if you would like And, you know, share your experiences or what came up. I'd love to hear about your heritage and what makes you unique culturally and ethnically and racially and just personality-wise. What makes you you? I'd love to hear that on the Facebook group or if you want to send me a private message on Instagram at Emancipated Molly or on Twitter at Emancipated Terry. I would love to hear about that from you. I've even gotten some emails from a couple of you. You can email me at Terry at EmancipatedCoaching.com. And if you want to contribute in some way to making this podcast even more accessible and, you know, help me in the work of putting this podcast out into the world, you can always go to emancipateyourmind.org and make a donation. It can be a one-time donation or a monthly donation. All support is really appreciated as I pour resources into creating this content, researching, and it just allows me to spend more time with the research and more time digging into what what the studies have shown and where we're headed now and what the differing opinions and ideas are. And I feel incredibly blessed that I get to spend such a big portion of my life researching because I really do love researching and I would be doing this anyway. But it means a lot to me that I'm able to support my family while I research and make these podcasts available to you. Starting next week, we will be getting back into narcissistic family systems. I created some podcasts that had to do with scapegoats and golden children, as well as covert narcissism. So all of that will be coming up in the next few weeks. You'll have those resources available. But I wanted to put out this podcast this week, right after Monica's podcast, because I just had so much beautiful communication from all of you and wanted to broadcast that you're not alone, feeling caught between cultures or without a culture and that that is important it is an important part of our identity if we want it to be that if we're not ready to accept it we don't have to but it can really inform who we are and knowing who we are is so empowering all right all of you beautiful souls i will talk to you next week and thank you so much for joining